This is a Retail Insider Podcast. You're listening to the interview series. Welcome to the Retail Insider Podcast. I'm your host today, Craig Patterson, and we're joined here with Lisa Amlani. She's the principal and founder of Retail Strategy Group based in Toronto. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for having me, Craig. Now, we're going to talk a little bit today about retail in Canada and beyond, including some future predictions. Uh, But first, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and a bit of your background. Yeah, of course. I am a retail insider also. (laughs) I'm a a merchant uh, product developer uh, turned uh, strategy consultant. So I spent about 20 plus years in merchandising, buying, planning, and product development for apparel, accessories, and footwear brands across the world. Uh, working with uh, Ralph Lauren, Club Monaco, I've worked at Holtz, Sporting Life, um, and then uh, Ralph Lauren in Europe. I I was the buying lead for uh, the Lauren brand for Northern Europe, and then I was uh, part of that EMEA APAC team. Um, I've also worked uh, with um, some great uh, brands like Nike and also Walmart. <laughs> so I've kind of spent a lot of time uh, within mass merchants and design-led brands. And then uh, in 2018, I actually shifted into consulting and uh, Accenture wooed me, brought me on as their uh, soft line SME. And um, I did some really cool things there. And then in 2020, like most people, you know, you start a new new thing. So I started my own consulting practice in the heart of the pandemic. Uh, but I found that that's when people needed the most help. So, um, you know, I, I love to help uh, retailers and brands kind of shift the way that they're working and the pandemic was a great way to to do something different. Now, what have you seen so far um, around retail during the pandemic as you've uh, transitioned your own business? Well, I think that the biggest statement um, even entering the pandemic was physical stores are dead. So, you know, let's just clear that up right away. Uh, physical stores are not dead and they're not going anywhere, but it's important for for retailers to really evolve. Um, and evolve in a sense where the customer is the center of everything they do. Um, the customer should be delighted unless it, unless you're, you know, purely transactional and it's convenience and price should be, you know, first and foremost. But I'd say that, um, the physical store is not dead. And that's what we've learned throughout the pandemic. And we must embrace technology. I think this is something that, um, you know, I, I preach to everyone that I, that I work with, that I talk to, and in my content is around uh, really embracing and enabling the right technology and the right digital tools so that you are able to get closer to the customer. So you're able to close the feedback loop and learn from them and be more sustainable and responsible when you're producing, manufacturing, and of course, um, going to market with the right product. Now, we wanted to talk a bit about some future predictions. This is something that you've been uh, posting recently online um, as, as I guess a bit of a futurist you've got obviously experience in the retail industry which is leading to some uh, uh, forecasting uh, tell me a little bit about what you would see in terms of say the future of retail around uh, we've talked about the physical store technology I mean I think they're going to be merging together yes uh, tell, what do you think the store of the future is going to look like generally in terms of say showroom or otherwise for, for different categories fashion or otherwise yeah well what I would say is one of the most important things is that, you know, we really need to marry uh, art and science when we're thinking about stores, when we're thinking about brands and product. And in terms of the future of retail, I would say merchandising, planning, inventory management 
these are some things that uh, we're really going to focus on because the one thing that the pandemic did do was really put planners in the spotlight. Um, you know, with with stores closing, with uh, shifts in in buying behavior, and of course, um, ca- comfort categories. Uh, you know, just really using digital tools and data insights to drive some of those decisions. That's something that is going to enable real time visibility. It's going to reduce excess. It's going to make us better buyers and and brand reps, right? Um, and working in that unified commerce. So what I mean by that is, you know, we talk about omni-channel and, and of course that's very relevant, but the way that I talk about omni-channel, I've kind of shifted that and I talk about it from a unified commerce perspective because there's so much more than just digital. There's so much more than just physical. We really have to look at everything in, in, as we retail in its entirety and all the touch points that the customer uses to engage with the brand and retailer. Uh, around product creation, I have a lot of future predictions here, and I think some of them are actually being put in place, which is really exciting. Around uh, digitizing uh, some of the the line plan and some of the creation around uh, digital product creation, reducing samples with uh, digital twins, or um, you know even collaborating with the customer before confirming designs and going to market with products. So removing some of that guesswork. And using the tools that we have to, to get faster to market, which brings me to my next one, uh, speed to market. So spending time on the right practices, the right processes, and you know, really helping us create the right product at the right time and right place. Um, when I talk about speed to market, some people have, have uh, commented on some of my work around, oh, is that just going to make us fast fashion? This has nothing to do with fast fashion. It has everything to do with products having a purpose and us spending the right time on product development for each type of product. So let's spend less time on reinventing the same things. Uh, let's spend more time on creating seasonless and core assortments and a lot more time on innovation. Um, which brings me to my next future prediction, which is around sustainability and responsible retailing. Reducing overbuying and overproduction is something that we all need to work on uh, from a global perspective. And innovation in material development and you know production practices and what we're doing to the planet and our water, you know, with coloring of materials. I think Ralph Lauren is is doing such a great job and sharing their knowledge and what they're learning. So is Levi's, which is wonderful to see. So um, sharing a lot of those uh, best practices, I think, is where we're going to really uh, move that wheel and um, focusing on resale and circularity. And, um, you know, I I love to see brands that recycle materials. And I think that um, there's, there's a lot to be said around innovation of textiles and materials. Because there's so much waste, mm. even in development and sampling, which is something that we don't talk about. Um, samples yeah. and uh, returns are, you know, the just like one of the off, most awful words in retail in the bane of many people's existence. So um, this is something that we need to keep talking about. Yeah. And have you seen more in terms of resale? This is something that we're seeing some with the higher brands. You know, there's certainly been a conversation around sustainability, but now we're also seeing some brands even embracing this as. I don't want to say part of the channel, but it, but I know Gucci got involved in this. I think it was last year. 
Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's a trend anymore. So I think that this is something that many brands are embracing uh, from luxury to off price to performance sports brands. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Uh, the more we talk about it, the more consumers ask for it. I think that um, we're, we're going to see a bigger push towards resale. We know that uh, a lot of the resale players have a resale um, as a service solution. So it's very easy for brands to actually implement resale throughout their retail end-to-end process. Um, and the way that brands are focusing on sustainability now versus two years ago, I think that um, it's just more important than ever. And as governments and leaders get involved and put mandates out there, I think we're going to see that um, really uh, expand to the masses, which is awesome. Amazing. And it's a conversation that we've had for a while. Um, We're even starting to see some, uh, we can call it vintage or I guess higher end um, secondhand retailers in mainstream shopping centers, which I don't think is something that we've really seen in Canada before, certainly not the A-malls. And uh, I know that Scarborough Town Center is one example of a center that that now has that. Yeah. And I think a lot more players are going to start playing in Canada. And, you know, I think, um, you know, you talked about that in another episode, you know, we, we chatted about it with Aloe Yoga and some other brands, even, you know, UK spec savers, I'm from the UK. So that's exciting to me. Um, But uh, it, it is putting Canada on the map. Uh, That's what's happening today. And I think that the world is getting smaller, especially with uh, the access that consumers have today with global brands uh, from an e-commerce perspective, you know, we have a lot more options than we've ever had before. So we are going to see, we're, we are going to start to see a lot more happening in that resale space. I know that the Bay is doing some, you know, they've allocated some space in there, but they've had that for a while. And I think that's something we don't talk about is that there are some things that the Bay is doing pretty well. And I'm happy to see that. Um, we're going to see it a lot more uh, as, you know, stores like the real, real and, um, even eBay, you know, eBay's doing a good job. You know, they're what the third largest marketplace or second, I think, in Canada. And um, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. Um, and the beautiful thing about you know an eBay or even you know a resale model is that it's aligning with more and more customers' values, and that's why we're going to see this um, expansion into sustainability and responsible retail across the board, across verticals. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? And you mentioned international brands as well coming into Canada. I've been told by some brokers just having high-level conversations that there's this incredible demand. I I think that the world is getting smaller and that the brands Mm -hmm. that are really strong uh, are saying, well, we want to be everywhere. It doesn't mean they have to have a thousand stores in every country by any means, obviously, but certainly having that uh, presence there even if it's just you know, one or a few brick and mortar stores but but this is something that certainly we're observing mm-hmm. here we just did our tally of 2021 brands that entered the country I, i've since spoken to a few more brokers that have said oh just get ready because 2022 is going to be a big banner year it sounds a bit exciting but the, the world is, is is getting smaller in that you know even despite this pandemic we still have interest uh, from from retailers around the world yeah it's great and i think that the more they learn about the Canadian customer, the more they'll want to expand into Canada. So yes, they may start on Bloor Street or, um, you know, and, and Saint, on St. Catharines in Montreal or in Vancouver on Robson. But um, I think that we're going to see that as, you know, us urbanites have been sort of leaving the city, 
that we're going to see an influx of really awesome brands in the suburbs and the smaller towns, because that's where a lot of people have disposable income as they're spending less on their homes, um, you know, on mortgages in the city, and they're spending half of that. Um, look at the, the home and DIY industry. It has boomed, you know, during this pandemic. So I think we're going to see, you know, a lot more retailers test the market in ways they've never done before. Interesting. That could include pop-up retail or any sort of... Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I was actually going to bring that up. It's like you read my <laughs> mind. <laughs> um, I think that the, the, the CRE world is, is definitely evolving, which is something that I love to see. Um, I would like to see more of um, just more partnerships within, um, you know, the, the tenant versus landlord. Let's blur that line a little bit more so that we're innovating together with uh, mall owners and um, different areas of um, commercial real estate. There's a real opportunity there to change, change that narrative. And short-term leases have uh, definitely been a lot more popular, but also the pop-up, right? Um, there's this, uh, I believe they're out of the UK called Sook. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, they're a wonderful uh, pop-up space, but what they do is they bring different brands in or DTC brands that are looking to engage in physical footprints, giving them that opportunity to test, but also capture insights from the customer to understand, does that space work for them? Is there something that they can change? Uh, closing the feedback loop from the customer. And of course, learning what the customer wants and needs. I think that's what the beauty is of physical retail. So if if the commercial real estate, retail real estate industry can you know, help a little bit more um, DTC brands and smaller brands and just better understand um, what retailers and brands need instead of forcing their hand on these long-term leases, like that's not good for anybody anymore, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, it's got to work for the brand. And in some cases, brands don't want to be in a location for a long period of time. Uh, I think 2017, 2018, we saw this rise of the pop-up store and it's it's continued. I mean, it's gone mainstream, I think, at this point because of the pandemic. Um, yeah. There was a study a few years ago from the International Council of Shopping Centers. They discussed a halo effect where, say, if a retailer had a presence online in a certain market... When they opened a physical store, they found that there was a boost also in online sales. Obviously, there would also be some sales in that physical store, I would assume anyways. Um, but uh, it, it was interesting from a consumer perspective that having that physical location uh, led to what would appear to be a, an increase in brand awareness, mm -hmm. uh, which also led to an increase in sales uh, across the channel that they may not have expected, which is the online channel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we have learned from consumer behavior is that many of many folks are digital first, right? Um, but when they do see a new brand or you know walk a department store or a Nordstrom or the Bay and they see a new brand, they're going to look it up online. I mean, I do it. I, I know many, I'm sure you do it too. And uh, it's important to have that presence um, on a united front, like what I talked about earlier, a united commerce, a unified commerce. And of course, you know, that, omni-channel um, engagement, it's so important to look at um, what digital gives you in terms of insights and learning from, from the customer and what the customer wants. 
but you do that in a, in a physical store as well. I mean, I started on the shop floor, you know, after my, my degree in Herod's actually. Um, and I learned a lot from the customer and because I was, um, very relationship driven, which is exactly what sales ambassadors should be. I, I was able to learn from my customer and if something came in, I would call them, right? This is, it's old school retailing is what I call it, but it's part of the fundamentals of, of retailing. And that's something that, um, we, we should really get, you know, get a better handle on is building deeper customer relationships and learning from the customer to feed product decisions, to feed marketing decisions or store layout decisions. Um, it's so important today to really involve the customer in your retail end to end. Oh, that sounds amazing. And now you mentioned that Hudson's Bay was doing a few things. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the big box retailers. If, uh, if you like, because we've got a few of them in Canada, we've got one traditional department store chain left. That's Hudson's Bay. We, we don't really mm -hmm. have any others, but we do have these large format retailers. Nordstrom, I think, is a large format fashion retailer, the size of a department store. Typically, we got them about 140 to 100, you know, 230,000 square feet in Canada. Uh, Saks Fifth Avenue currently, anyways, has some stores in Canada, three of them. Um, La Maison Simons, which yeah. is, uh, uh, you know, large format fashion retailer, really cool retailer. I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I really like I'm it. I'm a but... big fan of Simon. <laughs> I buy lots from Simon. Oh, I wish I had one closer to me. Uh, we can order it online, of course. Uh, and that's actually a great thing. They yeah. have a good website, really good online presence. I During the pandemic. They order, really do. Yeah. yeah. A great app as well. I use their app. I'm a I big fan. The app. That's yeah. But I love the stores. Like that's the thing is that they're really interestingly designed. They're fun. And anyways, we're now we're gushing about Simon's, but I, I really, I want to go shopping there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> But but with Hudson's Bay, um, you know they've done some really interesting things recently. Uh, we've been reporting on a new ca a, a vegan yeah. cafe concept uh, or plant based, maybe is the right term. But you know non meat based is is the idea. Uh, we've got kind of a circular economy thing happening. We've got pop ups. We've got clean beauty. Uh, really interesting to see some of what appears to be some innovations and changes happening within the retailer uh, for the better. Yeah, I would say that. And I think a lot of that is driven from not only what the competition is doing. So when we talk about the Bay, if, you know, they're, they're looking at what Nordstrom is doing and how they're getting, you know, they're very close to their customer um, and they're a, a great department store. So I think just seeing what the competitive landscape is doing, even south of the border is very important. Um, what Europe is doing, even with, you know, the recent sale for Selfridges, but Selfridges is still, um, you know, just one of the most beautiful department stores in the world. Uh, even if you go to France and you go to Printemps or Galerie Lafayette, um, you'll, you learn from, from seeing what's happening in the world. And I think that's what's happening today is that because consumers have access to the entire world when it comes to shopping and retail, the Canadian retailers have to pull up their socks. Um, and I think the Bay is starting to realize that. Um, not to say they hadn't realized it before, but I think that they're taking action now, which is a great thing to see. I love to see that. Of course, as a Canadian, I want to see them succeed. They are the most iconic retailer and oldest retailer in, in Canada. So I do want them to succeed. Yes, I, you know, as many retail experts, we didn't really agree with, you know, them splitting um, the physical and, and uh, digital businesses. But, um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, they're going to learn just to serve the customer with, with delight. And 
opening up a, a plant-based cafe could be that that way into the customer's heart. I'm not I'm not sure, um, but I think it's a good start. And investments, I think, are certainly needed to uh, uh, you know make stores look nice. I, I think consumers do react ultimately to their surroundings. I'm just thinking of such things as even. Uh, you know, the broken windows theory in New York City around crime. I know that's a really strange analogy, but what it was speaking to is that the physical environment has an impact on the behavior of humans. Uh, we've had uh, Mark Ainley on here before. He's actually a feng shuiist, so he studies flow in the design of buildings. And was we actually did a tour of some stores, and he was telling me, he would in advance predict and say, this is how these people are going to react when they walk by this thing that looks like it's sharp. And he was always right. And it was like he could predict what people, how they would behave based on the physical environment, which makes me realize that stores like Simon's that we were just gushing about in terms of saying these are really beautiful stores. Well, people may not necessarily do that with some other retailers in terms of their stores, like maybe Hudson's Bay. Yes. <laughs> other than the Queen Street store, which actually does look quite nice, I would say. Yeah, in Toronto. I think that the investment in stores is something that retailers really need to bring back a focus on. Um, you know, walking the bay, even in the suburbs, there's a huge difference, which is part of the problem is that there's a huge difference between the Queen Street store that you just mentioned and a store in London, Ontario, or um, some small, small C or D store, right? The challenge there is that there's an inconsistent uh, vision of the brand for the in the customer's eyes. And that means that there is, there's something that's missing. And what's missing is that connection to the customer. If I go into any Simons or any Nordstrom department store or even an Ema Marcus, I will get the same wonderful feeling that it is delightful. It is beautiful. Um, I want to spend time in the store because it's interesting. I'm not getting that from the Bay, you know, which is, which is sad. And I hope that, the influx of cash that they received when splitting digital and physical will actually drive a lot more investment within their physical footprint because this is something that they need to do. It is imperative. It is critical if they want to keep their customers. It makes a lot of sense. And be relevant, right? Relevance is important. It is important today. Um, like I said earlier, customers have more options than ever. Why, why shop in a in a store that doesn't make you feel good. Yeah, yeah. Or you can discover brands elsewhere. Um, one thing that I've certainly been tracking and talking about for a while is how uh, Holt Renfrew uh, operates very much, at least in recent times, on a concession model where many of the top brands that you'll see in that mm -hmm. store actually are operating their own shopping stores as leased concessions. Yeah. Uh, this isn't something that we see as much currently anyways at, say, Saks Fifth Avenue and at Nordstrom. Now, this is actually changing at Nordstrom, I believe. They're looking at moving their concession model from about 5% of sales to about 30%. But one thing that mm -hmm. I've been thinking about is that could change the vibe of the store to a degree. Because when you have independent operators within it the could. space, say with a Nordstrom, because Nordstrom is known for a certain type of customer service. I'm honestly not sure if we're getting that in Canada yeah. compared to the United States, just in my experience. Uh, since Nordstrom has come in, but nevertheless, Nordstrom has this, uh, you know, ethos of store, but if 30% or, you know, or if all the boutiques that we're starting to see in Nordstrom um, are becoming concession, that is going to have an impact because you're going to have those brand employees in there. Like the Gucci store at your, yeah. at um, CF Toronto Eaton Center in Nordstrom yeah. has Gucci staff. Those are not Nordstrom staff. Yeah. And, 
you know, I've lived in that world too, um, you know, back in the day. Because <laughs> I, like I said, I did start on a shop floor and I, I value that so much. But um, those concessions still have to adhere to the Nordstrom way, the Nordstrom brand imaging, like that is very, very important. And as stores begin to increase their investment in concessions, what they need to do is make sure that it's actually a partnership and it's not just, you know, this is your space, do with it what you will, <laughs> because that, that yeah, isn't, it's a that should mall. never be the way, right? Exactly. Exactly. But if it's treated as a partnership, then you can learn from each other. You can share insights. You can share customer um, delight and information, like, you know, outside of privacy laws, obviously. But you want to make sure that you're delighting the customer. And if a customer is going into Nordstrom, they're buying Gucci, they're, they're also buying Nike, you know, they're buying Nordstrom private label. You want to make sure as a Nordstrom um, retail, as the retailer, that you are giving that customer the best experience and that you're not just going to be like, okay, this is the line, this is the Gucci store. So you, you know, you go handle that and then we'll see you in a minute when you're shopping our private label. Like that should never be the case. And I'm quite certain that um, Nordstrom is, is pushing the partnership relationship uh, in a different way, which is positive. Um, but I will say that, you know, some other stores are not doing the best job in that, in that space i mean look at harrods harrods is basically like going into a shopping mall now so that's changed a lot and that oh. is one of the most iconic stores in europe um but a lot of the the luxury department stores are are pushing that concession model because they make a lot more profit that way and they don't have to actually buy the product and hold that inventory and then deal with markdowns excess and promotion versus if the brand manages that space. They manage the inventory. They buy the product. They so they they open up a lot less um, open to buy uh, for for consignment and for that sort of setup versus buying the product right it's out. It's an, an interesting model until the brand leaves the store and goes off on their own. I know this is happening. I don't know yeah, if I should look say at it. Saks, right? Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Louis Vuitton and Dior left Saks yeah. in Toronto. Um, another. Yeah. I probably shouldn't say it yet, but another very big brand will be leaving Holt Renfrew in one location and opening a standalone store. And I was blown away because this brand opened a concession two years ago and it's stunning. Um, and wow. this is the beginning, I think, of some big changes that we'll see here where we're going to see the concession model, which I've been praising forever. And I still think that to a degree, this is you know what is going to help work for some big box retailers, uh, certainly in the yeah. higher end. but. But now these brands are saying, well, you know, we're, we're just we, we got a cons we got a consumer base and uh, we're just going to go off on our own and, and maybe pay a little bit less rent. Because I think in the stores like Holtz, they're paying about maybe six to seven percent of sales um, as that rent, yeah. basically. Right. So in some cases, if you yeah. know Chanel's doing 35 million at Yorkdale at Holtz, they're going to, you know, let's say, well, maybe we should just and I'm not saying Chanel's leaving Holtz. I'm just saying, yeah. that, you know, if you look at what <laughs> rent they'd be paying, they might actually do better with a bigger space and pay less if they were just in the mall. Yeah. And I think something that a lot of folks don't talk about is the exclusivity agreements that Holt Renfrew was famous for. So when I was working <laughs> there, um, I was in the buying office at Holtz in the year 2002. And I will tell you that Prada was very angry about that exclusivity agreement and they broke it. And that's when they opened their grocery store. So 
you know, insider information for retail insider is that exclusivity <laughs> agreements are something that um, retailers will put into place so that brands don't open up next door, either in their own shop footprint or, um, you know, as a standalone or another department store. So that could be a reason why Dior is and, you know, whoever else may be leaving um, Saks, for example, that they can't be in that close proximity to another retailer that is also selling that brand. Um, and you'll see that across brands as well, not necessarily concessions, but also brands that they're very particular in who they're um, selling wholesale to or if they're opening a concession. These are some things that um, brands have to take into consideration because they don't want to dilute the market with their brand, but they also don't want to devalue their brand with the wrong partner. So there's there's a lot of nuances that um, you know happen in the corporate office. It makes sense. I saw Chanel leave quite a few stores over the years in the United States where you'd see sort of these, you know, fine upper end, you know, smaller department stores had Chanel that they don't anymore. They just pulled back on the distribution focused on kind of a Neiman Marcus Sachs type of. uh, uh, Yeah. I heard about that too. And a a huge reason for that was because those stores were putting the product on Markdown. Ah, yes. Which devalues the brand. Yeah. So is there anything else? Well, I have to say anything else we should talk about. You know, just what's happening in, in Canadian retail and how to get retailers in Canada to be less conservative yeah. and embrace more technology. And let's, you know, get those skill sets that we need to to get product to market faster and the right product to our market faster. Now, Lisa, you and I both got a bit of an honor recently. Um, you've gotten more of these, I think, than I have because I've never really been submitted. But <laughs> we uh, both made it as what was it? Retail influencers, experts for the for the um, rethink it's, retail yeah. list. Yeah, we made it to the 2022 top retail influencers, um, and this is on a global scale. Uh, in terms of experts, there's less than a hundred of us. So um, I was extremely excited <laughs> to make that list. I have a lot of friends on that list too, and a lot of people I look up to. So uh, very, very exciting, very exciting accolade. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, it's one of the first that I've been on. I mean, I don't really seek attention because you know you get it a lot with retail insider but <laughs> but, uh, but but it's yeah it was it was an honor i think it's great i'll, I'll put something on linkedin about it too because uh, i i hadn't even done that people said oh you should do that and i oh, i was like oh i'll get around to it it's just been a busy week but it's <laughs> you, you got to celebrate the little wins right absolutely and i think that just you know getting on a list um out of you know global experts but also looking different from any of the other experts. I think that's something that, um, you know, there's a handful of us, people of color um, and female uh, experts and leaders. I think that's something that should be celebrated. So I am going to celebrate that and um, all my uh, all my friends on that list too. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And you've got a newsletter as well that people can sign up for, themerchantlife.com. Did I get that right? That is correct. Yes, please sign up. We'll be releasing um, the January edition next week and we'll be digging deeper into those future of retail predictions for 2022. Excellent, excellent. In the show notes, we will have a link to themerchantlife.com as well for people to go and sign up. So thank you so much for joining us today. This has been Lisa Amlani. She's the Principal and founder of Retail Strategy Group. Thank you so much for joining us today. We got to have you back and talk more about retail. I can't wait. 
Thank you so much. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening today. Take care and bye for now. Thanks, Craig.